I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, Canada's national digital theatre. Each week, we take new and underproduced theatre scripts and short stories and turn them into contemporary radio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. And today we're going to have an interview with the playwright of Better Angels, Andrea Scott. So when Chris and I were going through scripts that people sent us, Better Angels caught our eye right away because um, it had a really dynamic beginning. It opens with a 911 call. And uh, I think particularly for an audio play, um, something that draws an audience member in or a listener in from the top is is really interesting to us and an interesting uh, thing to remember, I guess, that we've noted um, when when writing a play. And for us, we were also looking for something that would be a contrast to the previous play, which was Agamemnon. And we found that Better Angels was was quite contrast in style and performance and also in subject matter. And also, it wasn't part of the grand plan. We, We didn't program it because of the timing. But it turned out to be a great coincidence that February was Black History Month. So this topic really does work well with the timing of the release of the piece. And the topic, just in case you haven't heard the previous episodes, is about a nanny from Ghana who is taken in or brought in by a, a well-to-do family to be a, a nanny and a housekeeper. And just something that, that Chris and I noted uh, this morning, actually, was how many um, listeners we have in the Philippines. Um, our our listenership has has uh, changed, and the third highest country that's listening to Play Me at the moment is the Philippines. And we're we're wondering if if there are some potential nannies that are out there that are listening to this um, this experience and, and second guessing whether they want to come to Canada and work. <laughs> I don't think that's that's the usual scenario, but but good to know, good to be forewarned about. Um, the bad side of it. Shall we jump into the interview now? Great. So this is Andrea Scott, playwright of Better Angels. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, I was looking on your resume and it was, or sorry, your bio, and it said that in 2010, you made the transition to writing. So I was very curious, what, what were you doing before you were a playwright? Yes, I'm a professional actor. Uh, I mean, I don't identify as an actor anymore, even though I do audition and I have an agent and I go out. But I decided in 2010 that I wanted to transition to writing more. Um, I was in a play uh, at Factory Theatre called Who Knew Granny? And that did very well. Um, Audrey Zina Mandiella in Obsidian Theatre. But um, I, I had had an idea for a play that I was working on, and I had written like a very small draft of it called Eating Pomegranates Naked. And Jujube Mandiella, Audrey's daughter, had said to me, you know, if you 
are really interested in pursuing this, you should maybe apply for a grant for it. And I didn't know what she was talking about. And she sent me the information about the Ontario Arts Council Theatre Creators Reserve, Reserve Grants. And so I applied and I, I think I received two for that play. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And uh, also from that connection of working on that play, I met Mal Haig, who is the dramaturg at Obsidian Theatre. And she encouraged me to apply with the play Eating Pomegranates Naked to be in their playwrights unit. And I was in the playwrights unit starting in 2011. And that's kind of how it started. I mean, I continued to act. I continued to go out to auditions. But I decided to really focus on the writing and turning in drafts and just learning the craft. Eating Pomegranates Naked was really, a, it was a huge hit. It was, I think, 2013 at yeah. Summerworks. Yeah, huge. Uh, huge is relative. It did well. <laughs> it did well. It did, uh, it had good reviews um, and it had a nice cast. Like, I, I was very happy with the people that I had in my show, Marcy T. House and Sharissa Richard. And uh, it was it was a great cast and it was directed by Mumbi Tindibois. Um, and we, I think we weren't, uh, recognized as Best Ensemble and I think Best New Play by Now Magazine in 2013. So yeah, it did okay. And it also had four readings. We did four readings um, with Obsidian Theatre, uh, New Ideas Festival, uh, Black Theatre Workshop, and uh, there was one more. Oh, Be Current. Yeah. What was the inspiration for that piece? Eating Pomegranates Naked? Um, I had read maybe 15 or 20 years ago a Dear Abby column, where someone had written in to say they think that they may have ruined their friendship with their friend because they went to a dinner party and they drank too much. And when they went to the bathroom, they were the, they liked to snoop in people's medicine cabinets. And when they went through the medicine cabinet, they found a pregnancy test that was positive. And they were a little tipsy and they want, went downstairs and they, they were like, congratulations. And the couple were like, uh, uh, of what? And they're like, the baby. And there was like a dead silence. And the wife said, we had a miscarriage. And the friend was like, can I ever earn her forgiveness? And I think Abby was like, no, that relationship (laughs) is over. You you know, you violated her trust. You shouldn't be going through people's medicine cabinets. And I decided that's an interesting, that's just an interesting scene in and of itself. And then I wanted to know what the satellite stories would be of all the people in that situation. So, I mean, at the time, I I had a lot of friends who were either having babies or considering having babies or um, quietly trying to not have babies with husbands who wanted them. And uh, I, I thought, I want to write about that because um, I was, of course, being asked, frequently by people, don't you want to have children? And it's like, you know, I kind of think that's a rude question to ask somebody because you have no idea why someone doesn't have children. It may not be because they don't want them. It might be because they can't, because they have a disease, because they have something that's hereditary, they don't want to pass on. There are a lot of reasons. And sometimes they just don't want to have children. And it's none of your business. So I wrote the play based on that and uh, I also wanted to see people of color on stage um, having problems that had nothing to do with race. Just the same things that everybody else has. That's why I wrote it. And uh, I always like to have a strong female protagonist and have her be a woman of color. And so that's how we got Marcy T. House to play the role of Sarah. 
You talked a little bit about um, the transition from being an actor to a playwright and some of the things you've used as inspiration. I'm just wondering, do you find being a playwright a challenging challenging career path? And how, how is it for you? I suppose it is a challenging career path. I mean, I'm not getting rich off of it, but I, I have no interest in getting rich. I, I want to continue to be able to support myself. However... I decided that I was going to absolutely focus on writing when I had a medical emergency. A lot of people who know me know this happened in 2012 when I went to Summer Works and I was in the audience watching Terminus, um, the Outside the March production. I was in the front row and I had a medical episode. I fainted, but... uh, According to people in the audience, I it appeared that I had a seizure. I, I don't know. I don't remember what happened. I just know that I wasn't feeling very well, and then I was on the ground. And when I came to, the audience was gone. Lights were on. I was looking up at Christine, not Christine Horn, um, Mev. And uh, it was very disorienting and problematic for me because I immediately realized that Thankfully, it, it was it was nothing. It was something that had something to do with a viral infection, but uh, it could have been an aneurysm. It could have been like that, that my life was over, and I would have been able to say, "What have you done, Andrea?" And so I decided to really make the effort to make a go of being a, a writer. Didn't matter if I could make money at it. I wanted to leave something behind. And in my play, Eating Pomegranates Naked, my my favorite character was Cassidy. And Cassidy was the character who was single, who worried about her legacy. And she's like, what do I have to leave behind? I don't have any children. Will, what, when I die, will people remember me? And if they do remember me, what will it be for? And so that is why I started to just start writing in earnest. So I'm not looking at perfection. I, don't, I feel like there's only a few perfect plays. Like I, I love I, Claudia. It's one of my favorite plays ever. I saw it three times in one week. And uh, Angels in America. Um, and so can't, I, I mean, very few people can write the perfect play if such a thing even exists. And so I have a lot of plays that I have written. I start them and then I move on to something else and then I move on to one. So I have like probably about half a dozen to nine plays that have been, been started. And then I just return to them and then complete them because I want to have as many pieces out there as possible. I think that's really a refreshing thing to hear and to be reminded of that nothing is perfect and that you don't have to just strive for that. It's just getting it out there and, and, yeah. and working on it. And also um, that being a, a successful playwright isn't necessarily being a rich playwright. It's it's actually just getting a chance to do your work. And seeing it. I, I mean, seeing a reading of it, uh, seeing it staged, that's all I wanted. I really wanted to see pomegranates on stage. And once I got healthy again in 2012, that's what I decided to do. So I focused on uh, rewrites and um, edits and then submitted it to play, uh, Summer Works and it got in and it was in a 2013 festival. So it was quite validating to have it do well. Wow. You, you talked a bit about, um, you know, the life as a writer. What What is your process and what is your routine? Do you write every day? Do you... I don't write every day. I know that you're supposed to write every day, uh, but uh, I don't I don't necessarily work on the pieces, but I do a, a lot of research around all the different plays that I'm working on. So I'm always reading up on a subject or I'm doing research regarding how to market the play or 
looking at different kinds of advertising because I'm I'm kind of a three-dimensional uh, artist in that I don't just look at the writing. I also look at how can I market this? Um, how can I get the attention of artistic directors? How can I get actors interested in my work? Um, what shows are going on? What plays could I be reading right now? Um, so I, if I'm not writing, I'm doing something theatrical in some way. And like, what did, what did I do today? Did I do anything today? Um, yeah, so I was looking into how to market the next play that's coming up, which is my Theatre for Young Audiences play and trying to figure out how to get people to go and see it because it's in North York and, you know, with Toronto theatre people, they like to stay it's downtown. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just as guilty of that as anybody. I live in the annex. So um, there is that, me looking at how do I get people interested in that. I want to talk a little bit about your play that we are going to be, speaking mm -hmm. of doing things today, that we're going to be mm -hmm. recording today, Better Angels. Can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration for it? I saw a film called I Am Slave at the 2010, um, two, 2010 Toronto International Film Festival. And it was this true story of a woman named Mende Nazar who was kidnapped by... Um, Arab slave traders um, from the Sudan when she was 12 and she was sold to a family in Africa. And uh, when the woman of the house was tired of her, they sent her to England. I don't know how they were able to get an African child on a, an airplane without a passport, but they did. I think they were like, they had diplomatic immunity or something like that, or they were ambassadors. And she was kept in a house, a beautiful home in London, England in the 80s uh, as a house slave. And it wasn't until they trusted her enough to take out the garbage that she saw um, someone who looked like her, someone who looked Sudanese, walk past, and she was able to say, please help me, I'm being kept captive. And they were able to rescue her a couple of weeks later. And to me, the fact that this had happened when I was a teenager in London, England, I felt like that is something that could totally happen in Toronto or New York or Aurora, anywhere, because we live such quiet, unobtrusive lives where no one really pays attention to what's going on. I mean, they, they may see you and your husband and your kids, but they don't know if you happen to have somebody <laughs> trapped in your basement. And we have seen a few cases where women have been kept in homes for up to 30 years, which was one that happened a couple of years ago in England. And most people were like, I don't understand. How is that possible? And it's called invisible handcuffs. Uh, you can make a person feel like they can't leave, even though they could actually walk out the door. Um, it's psychological. It's emotional. Um, it's economic, economic slavery. So I thought, I want to write a play about that. So I wrote a very tiny version of it. I think it was 10 or 12 pages that I wrote. And it was at the time called Licorice and Nicotine. And I wanted it to get into the New Ideas Festival. I had this image of it being in the New Ideas Festival. So I wanted it to be nice and short. Um, but it, it didn't it didn't make it at that point. But then, I think it was in 2010 or 2011, that's when I was in Whole Foods near my house in the annex. And I was with uh, my friend Sharisa Richards, and I pointed at a woman and said, that woman looks like the character in my play. I know that sounds really strange, but in my mind, that woman over there looks like my character. And Sharisa said, oh, I know her. I'll introduce you. So I went over and 
I was introduced, but I wasn't introduced by name. And Sharice says, like, oh, my friend wrote this play and she wants to tell you about it. So I started talking to her and I told her that I'd written this play about a woman from Ghana. And this person went, oh, I'm from Ghana. And I was like, really? And she said, yeah. She's like, where in Ghana? And I said, she's from Accra. And she's like, that's where my family is from. And I was like, really? That's that's very weird. I was like, well, anyway, so Okosia moves here from, from Ghana. And she's like, wait, your character's name is Okosia? And I said, yes. And she's like, that's my name. And I'm like, come on. <laughs> That's ridiculous. She's like, no, seriously. My name is Okosia, and I'm an actor. And you've written a play about a woman from Ghana. This is too weird. I'm like, well, sounds like I wrote this play for you. So let's make a deal. This play ever gets produced. The role is yours. And I mean, I think it's like actors hear things like that all the time. And they go, oh, okay, thanks. But I really meant it. And I got her email address and I said, I will send you a draft of my version that I have right now. And we had trouble with it going through and it never really happened. But then I saw her then, Akosia, in the middle place and she was phenomenal. And I saw her in the crucible and I would see her at different functions. And then it got into Summerworks and I sent her a message and said, clear your August. We're doing a show. So you you think that like you don't think you had seen her in something else? It was just she hadn't done anything destiny. else. She yeah. was she was at York. She hadn't wow. done anything. So I know I thought the same thing. I'm like maybe you did see her, and, but no, no. I just looked at her and I was like, that is so weird. You look like my character. And the first time I heard her read the part, which was during the liftoff festival at Cahoots, because I was in their playwrights unit, um, it was like I had written it for her. Just hearing her say those words, I was like, this is so weird. Her star is really on the rise, too, isn't it? I know. It? It's amazing. It makes me so happy. It makes me so, so happy to see her talent being recognized. She's a great person, and she's a great actor. Um, I love that you're talking about um, uh, invisible handcuffs. Because like, when I when I first read the play, at the beginning, like I really liked, at the very beginning, I really liked the, the couple, or I felt I knew them, or they're just so... Canadian. And so, and then they, and so, you know, there'd be a little something that would be slipped in and then it'd be like, okay, but then, but then I would be at ease with them again. So I thought there was something very um, disturbing in how comfortable and recognizable they were, yet that they were doing what they're doing. Um, did you base the couple on, on anyone or, or was it? No, uh, absolutely not. Um, I would say that both both of the characters are composites of the kind of people I have met in my life who, they're lovely, but there's an undercurrent of something, as Vern Good would put it, icky. Uh, they, they say something to you that seems like a compliment, but it's a dismissal. Um, like, one of my favorite parts in the play is when... Um, Layla is so horrible to Akosia at one point. And then she's like, oh, can you just get me a glass of water, hon? Thanks. And I mean, I know I've, I've been there. I know what that's like when somebody is, they're actually kind of rude to you. And then they call you hun. And then they put their hand on your shoulder and you're just like, don't touch me. <laughs> I know you want to be nice. I know you think you're being nice. And, the, and if I even called you on it, you'd be just like, no, I mean, I am so sorry you feel that way. And you're like, when I mean, you feel bad. <laughs> 
the couple is so liberal in so many ways, and yet it's just dripping with hypocrisy. Do you think that's that's common, or that's a theme that you see throughout a lot of liberalism? Yeah, it is actually. It is. Um, it's it's such a strange thing to talk about because uh, I was thinking about the fact that some people like to think that I, maybe not anymore, uh, depending on who you speak to, that racism doesn't exist, but it's just subtle. It's more subtle in Canada. It's not the same as in the United States. Um, the kind of thing where people might say something to me like, my goodness, you're so articulate. And I'll think, yeah, well, I'm from London, Ontario, and <laughs> I, I went to university, and I have a master's degree, and I took theater, so I know how to speak well. I, I just thought that was interesting because I, I didn't get that they – they were being racist. Like, I think that they didn't realize no. that they were doing anything wrong, no. which is which is scarier, obviously. <laughs> they, they, they really do believe that they're they're helping. That's the whole point. Like, that's when it's, that's why it's so insidious. Um, it's harder to fight. Um, I, I remember having a, an unfortunate disagreement with somebody about something like that who was a very nice human being, but she was like, I was raised in Etobicoke and there's no racism there. I've never seen any racism there. And I'm like, so because you haven't seen it, it doesn't exist. Of course, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a burning cross on the lawn? Uh, are you looking for white sheets? Like, what do you ex- what do you think it is? It's not quite as overt as the movies would make you think. It's these little things. Uh, Maya Angelou called it being pecked to death by ducks, where the duck, like, blows a little bit on the skin to anesthetize it, and then they take a little piece of you. So they make you feel like they care about you and then they hurt you a little bit. It's like bit by bit by bit. Death by a thousand cuts. Just going to say my wife, who's not white, describes it as you can see it in people's eyes and you just can't put your finger on it. And that's what makes it so maddening is that you can't, you know it's there, but you can't, you know, I mean, um, sometimes, I mean, I see it in certain people of a certain age and uh, they don't think that it's being seen but it's there it's transparent in some cases Um, they don't hide it as well as they think they do Uh, and so what you have to do is you just have to rise above it and I think that that's what most people of color have to do Um, otherwise it looks like you're overreacting and you're getting upset over nothing it's nothing or they meant well they didn't mean it it's like yeah, I've been hearing that for a long time. So yeah, that that is a an ongoing problem that you just learn to deal with. I thought the way you deal with cultural appropriation was really great in this because um, she is a writer, and you know people are influenced by things around them. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, incorporating that into the script? Um. Well, I mean, that was just me talking about myself. I mean, all writers are thieves. We're all paying attention to what's going on around us and trying to figure out how we can use it in some way. Um, uh, I guess the the idea of a woman who was white writing a story about Africans and slavery um, in a romantic manner uh, is galling, but it, it is actually a genre. It's a, There's a subgenre of of slave romance narratives, like romances that take place during the slave period. It, for some reason, just seems very... It's about the whole savior thing, you know? Um, 
I remember but one of the things that I did is I actually wrote two chapters of a novel of a fake novel called um, Castles in Accra um, about a, a, a dashing man who falls in love with his slave and uh, I then thought this is ridiculous and then I typed it into Google looking up the possibility of this being a thing and it's a thing Really? It's a real thing. Um, love stories with the backdrop of slavery, where one person's an abolitionist and the other person is a slave trader. And who do I love? Who do, I love them both, but one deals in slavery and one is against slavery, but I should probably be with the one who's an abolitionist. It's like, this is really dis- distasteful. Um, with the story of the slaves being not even secondary. It's just a way to take, tell their story without having them in it at all which is something that I find exhausting. Um, But people will find ways of telling stories that don't include the primary, I guess, storyteller, uh, protagonist, um, if they know that it will get an audience, fortunately, unfortunately. Um, One of the things that I have had a problem with is seeing stories of people of color being told by people who are white um, so not really understanding the perspective of, of black history and what it's like to live in a black body in this world um, and doing quite very well, doing, doing very well with their, their work. That exhausts me. <laughs> Why did you choose to have the couple of a mixed couple? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I, um, originally it was, it was a white couple, but then I actually would have, I was actually thinking of having it be all character all characters were going to be black because you know sometimes when you hear about people being enslaved it's sometimes being enslaved by their own people which is horrible um so I decided to compromise and uh and and have one character be biracial um the main inspiration for that was seeing Dutchman at Summer Works in 2012 directed by Saber and Rock starring Sasha Cole and Payson Rock. And I remember watching this couple, um, Lola and Clay are their names. And it's a very flirtatious relationship on a train, but it's on a bus for summer works, um, that ends up being quite violent. And I thought, what if we took this same couple and placed them in 2015? What would that relationship be like? And I wanted to see how they would interact, and I felt like there was always a there's a there's a power struggle happening that you see between them that's interesting. Um, and I love the idea of having somebody who was African, somebody who was the descendant of Africans, and a white woman, like European, all in the same space, um, negotiating their own ideas of what it meant to be free. Thought that would be a, an interesting thing to look at, and it it's great. Plus, he's biracial, so there's that that added layer on top. Yes, of Yes, well. yes, yes. I just wanted to ask about some of the themes that we see that I think reoccurring through some of your work. You know, a lot about marriage and relationship between mar- uh, within a marriage and secrets, <laughs> and the combination of the two. Is that something that you're conscious of when you're writing, or is that just? You know, it's not. But you're not the first person to ask me that. And it makes me wonder what it is. What's my problem? Why do I always write about this? I'm not married. Um, (laughs) My parents divorced when I was 12. But a lot of the stuff that I write about 
didn't happen in my parents' marriage. It's not that kind of thing. I think it's just that I have a lot of friends um, who are, are male and female who are married who talk to me separately. And the things that they tell me are interesting. And it, it's like that that moment where, you know, Layla and, and, and Greg are negotiating, what, what do we do? Uh, can you get me some tea? And, you know, he's kind of clueless. And then he finally leaves the room and Layla's like, sometimes she's like, I love him, but sometimes he's like, oh, like she's going to choke him. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> with <laughs> Friends saying, you know, I love my husband, but sometimes I want to smother him in his sleep. And I'm like, that's interesting to me um, because the the way that marriages are usually portrayed or the way we're supposed to believe that they exist isn't the reality. Um, sometimes people feel trapped. Sometimes people are worried that that person's going to leave them. Sometimes that person wants to leave but feels like they can't. Um, I've, I've, I've been single for a very long time. I have a lot of freedom. So I often wonder what it would be like to be married, and then get that moment of, oh my God, I want out, but I can't leave. I love that. That's a secret. That's a secret you hold on to. Um, I always find it interesting when people have been married for 40 years and then get divorced. Like, how does that happen? Don't you outgrow that feeling of, I don't want to be around this person anymore? Um, Do I believe that true love exists? I do. I am not a cynic about marriage. I'm not. I believe marriage is wonderful and it can be great. Um, I just think a lot of people settle uh, when they don't think that they have an option. It's about knowing what your options are. And marriage always seems to be the end game that I don't always agree with. Um, So I like to portray those marriages. Um, It's funny that you would ask me about that because thinking about my next place title. <laughs> I Which guess, is? I guess that does kind of speak to my my issues with marriage. It's called Don't Talk to Me Like I'm Your Wife. So, <laughs> oh, Andrea, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, it's a thing. Yeah. What does that mean, that line for, for you? In, for me? In your, or in your play, in the world of your play? Um, in the world of my play, it's actually um, – a seduction. It's Mata Hari saying that to the men that she is betting. Most of the men that she had relationships with, they were married. They were soldiers. They were away from home. And the idea being, you're with me now. You can talk to me any way you want. Don't talk to me like I'm your wife. Talk to me any way you want. Like it's a come on. But when I tell people the title, they they hear finger waving, <laughs> angry wife. <laughs> angry woman and I'm like no you can take it that way if you want but that's actually not what I meant you could substitute it with mother yeah it could be anything it really could so uh I actually think and I also like the way it scans I just think it sounds great so you just talked about that play um what else is next for you what's on the horizon well the next play is uh a children's play at solar stage opening in April and it's called princesses don't grow on trees the reason I named it that was because of the backlash against girls being perceived as princesses, little girls wanting to be princesses. Um, my protagonist, Calliope Gladstone, doesn't want to be a princess, but her mom calls her princess, and her daddy calls her a warrior princess. And really what she wants to do is be a scientist, and she loves she loves pie, um, like the 
pie. She likes numbers. Um, but her parents are distracted. They are always on their cell phones. Her brother is always on his tablet. And no one ever sees her. She feels like she's invisible. And then eventually she says, I wish I was invisible. And she ends up in fairyland where she meets an imperious queen, a talking uh, tree, um, a red hat, which is a dwarf, and uh, a very insufferable magpie. And they help her realize that sometimes other people need to hear their stories as well as her fairy tales. So that's in April. How do you find it different writing for kids? Um, I have a bad habit of being clever. I like to be clever, a little too clever by half, if you will. And uh, you really can't do that. And using wordplay, I uh, can't do that. You need to simplify it. I mean, I work my own little jokes in there that are mine that I'm hoping that the adults who are, who are going to have to sit through it will get. Um, and all of, like, the entire play is based on, um, like, uh, Anglo-Germanic uh, folklore. Like, so none of it's, like, completely, it's made up, but I am basing it on real folk characters that I've read about. And I'm hoping that there are people who will watch it and be like, oh, I see what she's doing there. Oh, I hear what she's, yeah. So it's different, but I don't ever think that you should talk down to children because I know I was a very smart child and I read a lot. So I try to speak to them as though they are smarter than we give them credit for. Yeah. This is great. Thank you so much for this. And especially thank you very much for, for Better Angels. And oh, for you're welcome. I'm glad you're doing this. Visit playmepodcast.com to leave a comment and let us know what you think of our plays. Also, please consider rating us and reviewing us on iTunes to help us grow our podcast. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley. And this episode was edited by Chris Tolley. The associate producer is Rashanik Jaberi. Play Me is funded by the Toronto Arts Council, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Ontario Trillium Foundation. Special thanks to our partners, the Playwrights Guild of Canada, the Toronto Fringe Festival, and the Spiderweb Show. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information, visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.